0: Section seventeen of Six Radical Thinkers by John McCunn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter four The Anti Democratic Radicalism of Thomas Carlyle. Part four. Such is the parable of Carlyle's own passage from a conviction of the mutability of things to a belief in eternal law. It is no paved highway, no firm arch he claims to have built and to the last he flung his missiles at all close logical synthesis especially if it seemed to him overconfident he is content with his zigzag series of rafts his flying pontoons over the impassable but he never doubts that the crossing can be accomplished an endless variety of phrase an endless monotony of conviction in force on a hundred pages the final conclusion that mutability and illusion be their empire never so wide, are but the appearances woven upon that cunningly wrought curtain of space and time, which lies between our imperfect vision and the realities that are abiding. Nor be its logic what it may, is this belief in ultimate realities ever more strongly held by Carlyle than when he realizes with a profound and pitying sympathy the transitoriness of life and the fragility of tenure by which the generations of short-lived men hold the earth it is the creed of his disciple emerson if my bark sinks tis to another sea his own strong words need no further comment know of a truth that only the time shadows have perished or are perishable that the real being of whatever was and whatever is and whatever will be is now and for ever carlyle then takes this momentous step but it is not to rest there for if he believes in unseen laws he believes also that these laws exist that they may be enacted this was in the main because he conceived spiritual reality as spiritual force hence his protest against the absentee god who sits on the outskirts of his universe to watch it go hence his insistence that this all-pervading force is present even in the evaporation of the raindrop or the rotting of the leaf this conviction runs throughout eternal law he writes is silently present everywhere and every when by law the planets gyrate in their orbits By some approach to law, the street cabs ply in the thoroughfares. Nothing less than this will satisfy his hunger for what is concrete and actual. Hardly has he ceased prophesying upon the mutability of the world before he is, like Plato again in this, bidding us turn to the world once more to see in its very dust and drift a revelation of eternal ideas. This comes out vividly in his attitude to Emerson a man's disciples are sometimes his best correctives and carlyle seems to have felt that emerson and his followers were just by reason of their faith and ideas in danger of falling into an airy and over-easy optimism which failed to do justice to concrete fact you seem to me so he writes in danger of dividing yourselves from the fact of this present universe in which alone ugly as it is can i find any anchorage he is more explicit still i will have all things condense themselves take shape and body if they are to have my sympathy i have a body myself in the brown-leaf sport of the autumn winds i find what mocks all prophesyings even hebrew ones nor is it too much to say that it is as profit of this doctrine that ideas or laws must find enactment that carlyle has done most for his generation there may be passages in which at times he seems to sink into pessimism he can see in the insane scramble of human affairs little but a tale told by an idiot hence his disgusts his satire his ferocious invective against cants and shams yet this is but the bitterness of an inverted idealism it bespeaks no loss of faith justice may be delayed men and nations may perish as if without law yet his final word is firm i tell thee again there is nothing else but justice hence the other the practical side of Carlyle. for despite all his acceptance of mutability his belief in the eternal and resistless activity of spirit compels him to reinstate though with a deepened significance that same endless procession of human affairs in which he had erewhile seemed to seek in vain for any substantiality at all it is necessary to dwell on this because it furnishes the key to much of his writings thus glancing for a moment at the form of his message it partly explains both his humour and his pathos For humor and pathos have both their root in the perception of contrasts, and Carlyle's view of life was such that contrast verging upon contradiction could never be far from him. Thus, there are times when, as he writes, the tragedy of life seems to be darkening down with every word. But it does not darken into night, for the thought of the evanescence, the nothingness of all the ways of men asserts itself, and the tragedy dissolves. In a sudden laughter of sunshine. Nay, I think with old Hugo von Trimberg, God must needs laugh outright, could such a thing be, to see his wondrous mannequins here below. And though the end is not always, perhaps, not oftenest, laughter, it comes through similar contrasts. As Teufelsdruck has it, light dancing with guitar music will be going on in the forecourt while by fits from within comes the faint whimpering of woe and wail. It could not be otherwise, for the humor and pathos of Carlyle are not decorations. They are of the essence of the changing movement of his thought. They come of his way of looking at what he once called the divine infernal spectacle of life. The reader who forgets this will never understand him. A high authority has asked if the same fountain can bring forth bitter and sweet it can it does in Carlyle, in whom if in any writer of the world the roots of the tree of laughter lie close to the well of tears enough however of the manner of his message our present concern is with its substance for it is in this that all his most characteristic doctrines find their explanation it is so with his philosophy of revolutions seely has called him in this connection the prophet of national decay and he is never greater than when illustrating revolution that is past or foreboding revolution to come but when his mind thus turns to destruction and decay it is for the healthy reason that in the horrors of insurrection in the roaring hell porch of a hotel de ville he can read as by flashes of lightning the eternal vitality of justice and the vigilance of divine judgment, I should not have known what to make of this world at all. He once said to Froude, if it had not been for the French Revolution. for it was not as a new beginning that he read that supreme catastrophe. it was as an ending, a judgment, a proclamation of the bankruptcy of imposture, a sowing of the wind, and a reaping of the whirlwind closely akin are his views upon punishment it happened some time before eighteen fifty that he went to visit one of those model prisons which thanks to romilly and mackintosh had by that time taken the place of the sties in which john howard did his work and having seen how within its walls the devil's regiments of the line were provided for he passed out into a squalid quarter hovelled in which the unfortunates not yet enlisted into that force were struggling manifestly to keep the devil out of doors and not enlist with him hence this outburst in the latter-day pamphlets in which with more than habitual fury he insists on the duty of hating criminals and if need be even when all else fails not till then of cutting them off in the name of god many readers saw in this nothing but reaction toward the old ferocious methods that turn the country into a shambles and the pamphlet is beyond gainsaying yet the matter has another a carlylian side for even were it true as some aver that the more society abhors crime the less it punishes it this would be no fit legend to engrave upon the lintels of our model prisons not at any rate until we feel certain that the less we punish crime the more do we abhor it thereby taking security against the facile pity and the doctrinaire toleration which do but murder pardoning those that kill it was this side of the question that appealed to Carlyle. it is false to stigmatize him as some have as if he were a mere ferocious apostle of revenge crime and criminals were hateful to him and he longed that the arm of human justice should strike them down because he saw in them a defiance of those higher laws of righteousness that are written on the adamant tablet and on the iron leaf by the finger of justice for with this calvinist calvinist in spirit long after he had ceased to be so in formula it is law and vindication of law from first to last he is always repeating himself said his critics so he is he says the same thing over and over again but this may be a merit for when prophets cease repeating their convictions there will be few convictions worth the repeating similarly with his teachings upon might and right and their relation it has often been grotesquely misunderstood it will always be misunderstood if it is not regarded in its true light as part of carlyle's creed as to the relation of god to the world carlyle never fails to see that might differs from right from hour to hour they may differ frightfully—that that is his word nor can this difference ever pass into identity through the success however prolonged of brute non-moral force for this is the direct opposite of carlyle's teaching process cannot make right if it be the fact And if he taught anything, he taught this that right stands distinct from wrong in the very decrees of God. There is, of course, much controversy familiar enough as to whether, in his interpretation of particular historical personages, he is not over ready to see in them the instruments of God, or at very least the scourges of God, where other interpreters would hesitate to claim any such credentials for them this is a question for historians let them decide or agree to differ whether frederick or mirabeau or napoleon were as carlyle draws them meanwhile the fact remains that these like other carlylean estimates which have seemed to critics all too favourable are so far from being due to over-eagerness to deify brute force and worship success that they are due to precisely the opposite proclivity their true derivation lies in a passionate life-long yearning to see justice done and in a faith that refused to believe that the old eternal laws that live forever could permanently remain without their witness upon earth carlyle could not think otherwise without infidelity to his fundamental conviction that if laws divine and immutable exist they will sooner or later find enactment lecky had once attacked him for taking might as the symbol of right i shall have to tell lecky one day as carlyle's rejoinder that quite the converse or reverse is the great and venerable author's real opinion namely that right is the eternal symbol of might as i hope one day he will with amazement and real gratification discover and that in fact he probably never met with a son of adam more contemptuous of might except when it rests on the above origin it is difficult indeed to reconcile contradictory indictments of Carlyle. this critic will have it that his eternities and immensities are mere abstractions and that in his outlook on actual life he is a raging pessimist that one stigmatizes him as a worshipper of success of the two the last is furthest from the mark thy success poor devil what will thy success amount to if the thing is unjust thou hast not succeeded we are now in a position better to understand carlyle's political teaching like plato with whom he was in many points though for long unconsciously at one he believes in ideas ideas which are the immutable objects of human thought and insight like plato he longs for the coming of the day when these ideas Shall be enacted in human affairs. Like Plato, he bitterly realizes how hard it is to enact them in a world given over to flux, irrationality, falsehood, illusion, and self seeking. And like Plato, not least like that great prophet of aristocracy in this, he is convinced that the kingdom of ideas can be realized not by the initiative of the hoi polloi, who spend their years in a vain show but by the elect spirits, the Carlylean heroes, the Platonic philosopher kings who are the ambassadors of the cosmos. Small wonder that Carlyle should have come to recognize his kinship with Plato when the parallel is so close. The two great implacable foes of democratic government part company only when the one, true to the Greek spirit, insists that the saviour of society must stand equipped in all the panoply of dialectic and closely reasoned system. And the other, hovering on the verge of mysticism, is content with the zigzag series of rafts, the flying pontoons of loosely knit thoughts which in him take the place of a philosophy. The divergence is not slight, but it is, at most, the divergence of thinkers, who are at one in the belief that all that is best in human life comes of conscious dependence of the finite spirit upon eternal realities when finally we pass from politics to ethics for the two domains are inseparably interwoven it is to encounter the same ultimate convictions the worst calamity that can befall a man as carlyle thinks is not misery however acute nor hardship however grinding worst by far, its obstruction. Not I cannot eat, but I cannot work, is the burden of all wise complaining among men. This was the trial of Teufelsdruck, as we have it in Sarder. The world at every turn shuts its doors in his face, and cast him forth a useless waif all through the bitter years when he was enacting the stern monodrama, no object and no rest, and struggling in vain to get his destiny as a man fulfilled this was the everlasting no it was an experience burnt into carlyle's mind by his own long uphill and at times all but desperate struggle we know from the life how the text that rang in his ears as in those of his great contemporary j s mill was the night cometh nu le dies sine Linea. so he wrote often enough in his diary nor is his reiterated message know thy work and do it to be read as it sometimes is as the resource the refuge of a strong spirit to whom speculative doubts have left the universe an enigma for the work of which carlyle is the prophet is always urged from sartor risardus onwards as the sure path by which the worker brings himself consciously or unconsciously into harmony with the supreme laws of life and in due season, if the work be honest, to a belief such as speculative arguments alone can never give, in a divine law of duty that is over all. Doubt is not removed, but by action. There is no refrain more constant than this in Carlyle's writings from first to last. Hence the Carlylean scorn of idleness. The idler, we read, must either be beggar or thief but worse even than this is the fact that he is outlaw and outcast. Looking up, looking down, around, behind, or before, discernest thou, if it be not in Mayfair alone, any idle hero, saint, god, or even devil. Not a vestige of one. In the heavens, in the earth, in the waters under the earth, there is none like unto thee if this be the worst we can already guess if only by contrast what is the best or in other words what is that supreme good for man which since the days of socrates has been called by many a varied name carlyle's name for it in Sartre is blessedness but the word itself will help us little it is so apt to be construed as nothing more than a superior kind of happiness and this of course is precisely what it is not Upon this point, Carlyle has left us in no uncertainty. When first he came upon the scene as man of letters, the ethical school he found in possession of the field was Benthamism, with its thrice-familiar watchword of greatest happiness, or more strictly construed, greatest pleasure. One cannot say that Carlyle argues with these utilitarian hedonists. There is satire, invective, derision, parody everything almost except argument he is like dr johnson when his pistol misses fire he knocks down the enemy with the butt-end and it may well have been among the peculiar trials of philosophers so earnest as the two mills or george that the adversary will so often not so much as take them seriously yet it is here as usual behind the rhetoric there are reasons For these diatribes are more than scoffs invectives parodies they come of the settled conviction that hedonism is doomed to failure because it gives a fatally false centre to life it centres all in pleasure the pleasure may be that of the individual as ultimately it was with bentham or it may be the pleasure of the whole sentient creation as it is in the doctrine of the younger mill but in either case though it is not to be forgotten that it is egoistic hedonism that carlyle denounces, the centre round which all else revolves is pleasure or escape from pain it is not thus that carlyle regarded human life the world god's seed-field and task-garden is on his view of it nothing if not a scene overshadowed interpenetrated by law inflexible righteous eternal Not to be questioned by the sons of men. As in the physical world it is law that governs alike the orbit of the planet and the evaporation of the dewdrop, so in the world of action it is law that lays its equally inexorable commands upon the human will. This is the centre of gravity of the moral universe, and this being so, it is the main concern of a man to see to it that his life is in actual willing harmony with this central fact. It is on record that Scotch-Voltaire, Lord Jeffrey, O oh wise judge, once tried to persuade Carlyle that it was not a man's duty to concern himself with his relations to the universe, as well might a polished Sadducee have set himself to dissuade the Baptist from preaching repentance. To find his true relations to the universe is to Carlyle the whole duty of man. It is an attitude which will bring its own consolations, for we must not number Carlyle among the Stoics who invested duty with a grimness which would freeze emotion at its source. Himself emotional in almost every line he penned, he has told us in the everlasting yea of the peace and of the infinite pitying love for man that came at last into the storm-tossed soul of teufelsdruck yet it is not this emotional experience even though it be sweeter than day-spring to the shipwrecked that is the prime object of endeavour it is the actual rightness of relation between the individual will and the moral law whatever more than this may belong to blessedness this is its essence no other conclusion was consistently possible for Carlyle, if to his eye mutability was written abroad upon the face of the world even upon many things which men and nations live and die for how much more upon the fragile tenements of all human pleasure behold the day is passing swiftly over our life is passing swiftly over and the night cometh wherein no man can work the night once come our happiness our unhappiness it is all abolished vanished clean gone a thing that has been but our work behold that is not abolished that has not vanished our work behold it remains or the want of it remains for endless times and eternities remains and that is now the sole question for us for evermore Brief, brawling day with its noisy phantasms, its poor paper crowns, tinsel, gilt, is gone. And divine, everlasting night with her star diadems, with her silences and her veracities is come. What hast thou done and how? No ethical writer of any age has felt this more profoundly than Carlyle. It was the verdict of his own struggling, aspiring, forever unsatisfied life it was the conviction he brought back from his contact with the world and from an encyclopedic knowledge of history and biography love not pleasure love god this the conclusion of sartor is the note of all he wrote upon ethical subjects it was a faith up to which he himself strove to live and not in vain many a critic has since he died been busy with his reputation but to all that has been said there is one answer it is not the only answer, but it is the one that cannot be gainsaid. His work remains, the want of that does not remain. It is not its magnitude alone, though its magnitude is vast, nor is it that in all he touched, essay, biography, history, prose, poem, reflective thought, he reveals the master's hand, it is still more the proof he is given From the days when, as an Annandale lad, he trudged along the moorland roads to the University of Edinburgh, till in extreme old age the pitcher was at last broken at the cistern, that the life of letters can be made the path of courage, devotion, faithfulness, and victory. End of section 17.